Tour Guide Tell All is sponsored by Malloy Law Offices. They are a personal injury law firm here in the local DC area that helps others recover from car accidents, work injuries, slip and fall injuries, and other types of accidents. They work on what's called a contingency fee basis. So if you hire Malloy Law Offices after an accident, then you never pay anything out of pocket. They also offer educational content and free consultations for those who may have more questions than answers. Like us at DC by Foot, we're really excited for our educational content meeting where they're gonna talk all about liability issues for tour guides. Visit their website at Malloy, M-A-L-L-O-Y-Law.com or call their offices at 202-335-6141. Malloy Law Offices is open 24-7, so don't hesitate to get the right legal help you need after a personal injury accident. Now on to the Rebecca's. Hello, Tour Guide Tell All family. Welcome to January, a new year. And uh, this is our second January episode, but we've got some fun stuff lined up. Before we get into all that, though, as always, I'm Rebecca. I'm Becca. And together we are the Rebecca's. And we're back, family. We are back in January. We've got a whole spring lined up of exciting and fun things. And uh, we want to, we are your friendly neighborhood tour guides that talk about DC and scandal and politics and fun and happiness. And although maybe not that much fun and happiness this time, but uh, we are really excited to be back with you. And we want to start out by giving, of course, a shout out to our patrons who keep the lights on and keep us running here. And uh, we, if you are not a patron, this is a good time to become one. We have patron only episodes uh, once a month that download and you get to hear our voice even more. And we say even more interesting things. Uh, so get in on the ground floor on that. And if you, there is a topic you, the listener, would like to hear, we want to know what that is. Uh, and so we can talk about it. So we are planning out our sp- spring and summer schedule. So let us know what you want to talk about and we will be happy to add it to the list. But this week, Becca, what are we talking about this week? We are talking about a story that still today people are sort of rehashing and digging into because it is technically still a somewhat unsolved murder. But in the era to which this event takes place, it ends up uh, with a lot of tragedy surrounding it. And I think is very illustrative of sort of the American South in the early 20th century and the reality of anti-Semitism in this country. So we're going to be touching a little bit on Jewish history. I think we should probably just off the top, maybe hit a little content warning on this episode. There's violence in this episode, lynching, anti-Semitism and sexual assault. So this is a heavy topic to kick into the new year with, but it's one that um, I think 
is worth digging into and worth talking about. For me, like a lot of topics on our podcast, I come to this through the world of musical theater. There is a musical called Parade um, that is about this particular incident uh, surrounding a man named Leo Frank. They just had a very well-reviewed, uh, well-received concert presentation at New York City Center last fall, and there's talk that there might be a Broadway transfer. So my hope is if it does sort of get a big Broadway transfer, this might be a topic that people kind of take a look at again and sort of evaluate. But we're going to be talking about that's some heavy stuff, but um, something that uh, many of our patrons have asked for, which is to dig a little bit more into Jewish history here in the United States. So this is the story of a man named Leo Frank. Leo Frank is from Texas, interestingly enough, not the reason I chose the topic, but he's from Texas. He's born in 1884. His family is going to move to Brooklyn shortly thereafter. He is um, very well educated, goes to Pratt, Cornell. He's a mechanical engineer, and his uncle Moses is involved with the National Pencil Company. He's a big shareholder with this big pencil manufacturer, and he invites his nephew Leo to come to Atlanta to interview for a job with the pencil factory. And Leo's pretty interested in the gig, and he takes it really seriously. He goes to Germany to be a pencil-making apprentice, so this is like a whole industrial process that was taken very seriously. And then he's going to start working at the National Pencil Company in Atlanta in August of 1908. And Leo Frank does so well, he becomes superintendent of the factory. And this is a very good gig in the early 20th century. As superintendent, he makes $180 a month plus a profit share, which is about $5,000 a month in today's money. And I mention this because we're going to talk a little later about what the everyday workers at the pencil factory make. And spoilers, there's a bit of a pay discrepancy. Now, Leo Frank settles in Atlanta, National Pencil Company. He meets Lucille Selig, and they get married in 1910. She comes from an upper-middle-class Jewish family that has been in Atlanta for decades. They are Georgians through and through. Uh, her ancestors actually founded the first synagogue in the city of Atlanta. And so she comes from a somewhat sizable Jewish community in Atlanta. And by the time Leo Frank has moved here in the early 20th century, this is the largest Jewish community in the South at the time. So there's a very diverse community in Atlanta, and there's quite a lot of representation of sort of the Jewish middle and upper class here. Uh, Leo and Lucille become very central to that community. He's going to be president of the Atlanta chapter of his Jewish fraternal organization. They're involved in philanthropies. They're in a very cultured circle. They attend the opera. They organize bridge tournaments. This is, I think, important to note because Leo and his wife are considered very integral, upstanding members of the community. And Atlanta at the time in the early 20th century really saw itself representing the new South, right? More modern, more focused on trade and industry as opposed to the old agrarian sort of agricultural-based society. They see themselves as becoming more diverse with job and educational opportunities. So the population there is really soaring. It's diversifying. So the idea that for many people living in Atlanta at this time is that this is, this is the new way. This is not the old 19th century South. We're progressive. We're on the dawn of a new age. Or at least that's the idea that Atlanta is trying to sell. We're leaving the past behind. 
Unfortunately, this is really not the right time for that. We're in the midst of the bottoming out of race relations. The early 1900s is not a really great time to be in the South for really anybody who isn't white and Protestant. Uh, And that's going to be really demonstrated with a woman or a girl rather named Mary Fagan. Mary Fagan is born 1899, Georgia tenant farmers. Uh, And she comes from a very humble background. Her father dies before she's born. So she's got a lot of pressure. Her mother has a lot of economic pressure on her. And she's going to leave school at the age of 10 to get a job at a textile mill. And this is not a particularly unique situation. Like Mary Fagan is in no way like the only person uh, to have to leave school at this time. And in this area, there's a lot of child labor going on. For example, she leaves to work at a textile mill. And then when she's a 12, her family moves to Atlanta. Her mother gets remarried. And so she gets a job with the National Pencil Company. She's 13 and she works approximately 55 hours a week. Like what? <laughs> what? <laughs> 55. And she makes 10 cents an hour, which is insane. So that's like about $3 an hour today. So first of all, she's working 55 hours a week and she's making next to nothing to do it. Like 11 to 16 is the sort of age. Atlanta is going to unofficially allow children as young as eight to work. Eight. Pause for rage and labor screaming. (laughs) And to be clear, this is not unique to the National Pencil Company. You could insert blank mill, blank factory, and this would be the reality. This is why we have such an uproar over child labor laws in the next decade or two after this event. But it's important to note that a majority of the people working in this company are children, and they are working for bare wages, and they're working in dangerous conditions for an excess amount of hours. And this is, so we talked a while ago, we talked about Francis Perkins, we talked about the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire. This is the exact same time period. So the Triangle Fire was in 1911, this is 1913, and it's a different city, but same like exploitative system. You've got immigrants, you've got not as many immigrants in Atlanta, because it's Atlanta, not New York, but you've got little kids working long hours for next to nothing with no protections. They don't have OSHA back then. They're working for next to nothing to people who aren't treating them well and are being there. Lots of kids are being deeply exploited for their labor. There are about 170 employees at the National Pencil Company when Mary works there. Uh, More of them are girls than boys. So the, the date in question here is April 26th, 1913. Mary had been laid off along with a bunch of other workers a few days earlier, April 21st, due to a materials shortage. She shows up at noon 26 to correct her pay, and actually she had to negotiate her way around a Confederate Day parade to the factory that day. So that's sadness. The next day, April 27th, the factory's night watchman, a man named Newt Lee, went to the factory basement to use the bathroom. He says... Newt Lee says he discovers Mary Fagan's body as he is leaving. She is near the incinerator and Newt Lee will call the police. Her body is discovered, Mary Fagan's body is discovered in a shocking manner. Her dress is hiked up around her waist. Her petticoat is torn and wrapped around her neck. There are bruises and scratches all over her body. It seems very clear from the position of her body and from the disposition of her clothes that there was a major struggle. 
something very major bad and bad happened to her. The most damning of all is that her underwear is torn, uh, is on her body, but torn and bloody. The police are then going to find a door nearby that has been tampered with, so it could be opened without unlocking it. And they will also find bloody footprints. Fingerprints, I'm sorry. There are bloody fingerprints. I apologize. It is later revealed uh, evidence that the crime scene is mishandled hmm, and compromised by police investigators, including a set of footprints. So they mishandle the evidence. And there's a case of this magnitude with this kind of violence. There should be plenty of physical evidence. And the police basically taint the entire crime scene and mess it up, which should have been a pretty big. I'm not a crime scene investigator at all, but that should have been a pretty big tool uh, in figuring this out. Uh, and so the crime scene is greatly compromised. Two notes are found near her body. The notes seem to implicate Newt Lee, the guy who found her. Lee says, when the notes are read out loud, boss, it looks like they're trying to lay it on me. And the notes are strange. Like it says, like the notes are basically like trying to finger someone in particular, which is not like, I don't know, if you're being assaulted, do you have time to stop and write a letter? Like that just seems, the uh, the notes are very suspicious because they implicate one person in particular. And when you're in extremis, like someone's attacking you, I don't know, are you, I mean, I guess it's a pencil factory. So they have plenty of material to write with, but not necessarily write on. And that's just not, I don't know. It, it's, it seems very suspect to me. And I think we should mention Newt Lee is Black, as are a number of the custodial and kind of security staff, as it were, at the National Pencil Company. So you're the police in Atlanta, 1913. The Black Night Watchman calls in this murder, this body. The police show up. Their assumption is he did it, right? That he's not smart and that he did it and just called them. So I think that's one of the explanations for the sort of just trampling over of the crime scene is they think they've got the guy. It's obviously this Black man here. So they're just all over the evidence, all over the crime scene. They find these murder notes. They say they implicate a Night Watchman. That's Newt Lee. So it's not too surprising, too, that the cops are like, we're arresting this guy. It's clearly him. He 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 had familiarity with the body because he recognized her because she worked at the factory. So they just sort of make this assumption. Newt Lee does mention that there's a supervisor to this factory, Leo Frank. Newt tries to call him and the police try to call Leo Frank and they could, neither could reach him initially, which will later raise some suspicion. But after 7 a.m. that morning, Leo Frank does agree to accompany them on a tour of the factory. And by everyone's account, he is pale, nervous and trembling. That said, he spends about three hours with the police that morning and no one at the time considers Leo Frank a suspect because they have this night watchman. He seems to be the most obvious suspect in this circumstance all of this seems deeply suspect to me like first of all if you're the night watchman and you killed this poor girl would you call it in absolutely not i know of no criminal that would do that and there's so like there's a lot of anti-semitism spoiler alert coming up but there's also like so much racism like the police the cops are like oh this guy's so dumb he killed this girl and then called it in like i don't know that just any even a glancing interest in true crime or investigations would tell you why would you suspect the person that called it in why he has the most interest in covering it up if he did it anyway just gonna say that's all 
So um, we're going to dig a little bit into the investigation, but I just want to note that we're not a true crime podcast. We are going to give you an overview, but there's a lot of mishandling and a lot of backtracking and things. We're just going to kind of give you the, the biggest picture on this. Leo Frank is a smart, educated man. He gets a lawyer immediately. There's been a murder at his place of employment. He gets a lawyer and he agrees to give a written deposition of everything he did on the 26th. Leo Frank will say that he gave Mary her pay around noon at his office and did note that Newt Lee came and went throughout the day, but he also mentioned that there were several gaps in Newt Lee's time card. Newt Lee and other Black employees were supposed to punch in every half hour to prove that they were actually at work, so again, that racism inherent in the system. Frank willingly exposes his body for investigation so that they can see that there are no scratches, no cuts, no bruises. So if there had been a struggle, Leo Frank has no evidence of that struggle on his body. There's no blood found on the suit that he said he wore on Saturday. There's no blood stains found anywhere in his laundry. But he is the last person to have likely seen her alive, although there was some testimony later that she was seen out on the streets and outside the factory after getting her wages. But while the police are sort of suspicious of Newt Lee, the fact that Frank was potentially the last person to talk to her, raises some flags. As the police continue to investigate the factory, they also come to believe that the attack actually happened on the second floor based on blood stains and a piece of hair that they find. Frank, again, recognizing that he is not in a good situation, hires a man named Harry Scott of the Pinkerton National Detective Agency to investigate this crime and prove him innocent. This is a very smart move on his part, right? He's a little suspicious about getting a fair shake from the police. He hires private detectives. What poor Frank doesn't know is that Harry Scott actually has very close ties to the Atlanta police, and his best friend is actually a local um, police detective, John Black, who believes Frank is guilty from the onset. He basically is convinced that Leo Frank had something to do with this because he is an outsider, he is a foreigner, he is different. And so this Pinkerton detective, Scott, who's supposed to be helping him, supposed to be uh, submitting duplicates of all their evidence to the police, basically is just going to mislead Frank and feed select evidence to the local cops. Detective John Black is actually going to find a blood-smeared shirt at the bottom of a burn barrel in Newt Lee's residence. So that's kind of suspicious, right? But Black actually suspects that Leo Frank planted it there to frame Newt Lee. So they're gathering all this evidence and putting it together just to fit the narrative that they want. April 29th, Frank is arrested. There's no real evidence or specific development that leads them to this. It's just really based on their own bias and suspicion. Even though Frank can corroborate his whereabouts, even though he has a pretty good alibi for all of this, the police are going to start digging into former employees of the National Pencil Company, and they're going to find people willing to say that Frank was a flirt, that he regularly came on to his workers, which again are primarily children, and that at least one man will come forward and say that Mary Fagan had complained about Leo Frank. I would like to just jump in here and say for the record that first of all, he finds these employees that are willing to say this. That doesn't actually make it true. And even if it did, even if Leo Frank is a flirt, there's no law against flirting. And had he been a sexual predator, which again, there's no hard evidence for this, that doesn't mean he committed murder. Like none of these things actually adds up to anything more than him being possibly a scumbag. 
And uh, sadly, there's no law against being a scumbag, but for probably it just there's so many holes. Yeah. And and even if, you know, let's say whatever employee, but it's not hard to probably find former disgruntled employees who didn't like working at this factory for poor wages working. I mean, if you would work 55 hours a week for 10 cents an hour in a really physically demanding job, you might have some grudges against your former employer as well. And I'm not saying that the, that they're wrong to not have been happy about those terrible work conditions, but pretty much every former employee was somebody who had left the NPC under an unhappy circumstance. And so we have to take what these people give as evidence with a, a real grain of salt in regards to Frank and his character. And you can see like the, the temptation, like you're a disgruntled employee, you you either got fired or quit making very little money where this rich swell who isn't Georgian and who's an outsider because he's Jewish, he's living high on the hog and he's going to the opera and all this stuff. You can see the temptation to like want to paint him in a certain light. Again, there's doesn't seem to be any evidence either way that Frank was inappropriate. It's just people said that he was. So it's suspect is my point. And also there's so much mishandling of this evidence. Anyway. So we're going to get into the trial pretty quickly. Um, uh, Mary is murdered in April. The trial is going to be July and August of 1913. Three weeks. It is a huge media sensation. This is what all the papers in Georgia are writing about. But papers outside of the state are going to take an interest. There's the sort of scandalous element of it. This young child, very likely, uh, you know, sexually assaulted. There are definitely papers that are picking up on the anti-Semitism of this and, and sort of speaking out about that. And there are people that just see, you know, you know, no reason for this man to even go to trial, right? It's clear that he's he's guilty. Let's get rid of him. So the media sensation around this is the grand jury is very short. It's a one-day trial for the grand jury. The prosecutor, Hugh Dorsey, basically tells them nothing. He basically says, look, if you convict him and we go to trial, I'll reveal all my evidence then, which the whole point of a grand jury is to prove that you have the evidence to go to trial. But it's clear that there's a bloodlust here because the grand jury doesn't even need to see any of that. They just agree to this trial. And so Hugh Dorsey, the prosecutor's sort of big ace in the hole, is a man named Jim Conley. Conley is also a Black man who works at the factory. He's a janitor, and he will become the star witness against Leo Frank. He had been initially arrested on May 1st after he was seen washing out red stains from his work clothes. He claimed that they were rust, which could be true. Witnesses say, though, that they saw a man in his clothing in the lobby of the factory that day. He could read and write, and his handwriting matched the murder notes. So we mentioned those two notes earlier. His writing sample that they take matches the writing on the notes. Conley would testify that Frank made advances at Mary Fagan and that Frank killed Mary when she refused. Conley claims that Leo Frank recruited him to cover up the crime and that it was he who transported the body by elevator to the basement at Leo's direction. He alleges that Leo Frank dictated the two murder notes to him in the hopes of throwing suspicion to Newt Lee. There are several newspapers that will help side with Jim Conley. They will share his side of the story. He does interviews. He's given this platform. The National Pencil Company, 
is on the side of Leo Frank. They will put out a statement saying they believed Conley was in the lobby with the intention of robbing a young woman, but ended up targeting Mary Fagan because of her young age. So the National Pencil Company's theory is that Conley was there with the intention of robbing someone and it turns to murder. Conley is overly coached, and we have strong evidence of this by Dorsey, that he is basically the pressure is put on him immediately to save his own skin and to say whatever he needs to say about Leo Frank. So there are numerous bits of evidence that show that Dorsey and Conley had many meetings, that there were essentially scripts that were written, documents written for Conley to say exactly what he's going to say. And then you've got this sort of support of the local press willing to put out these unsubstantiated stories. And of course, Leo Frank's lawyers are going to try to get the grand jury to indict Conley. They're going to absolutely say, look at all this evidence that points to Conley. The grand jury will not. They will throw that out. Many, many, many years after this, Conley's lawyer would go public with his belief that Leo Frank was innocent and that his client was likely guilty. And Conley will disappear about 30 years after this event. We have no idea where he died or when. We have no clue what happened to him after he was arrested for gambling in 1941. So Conley is sort of the figure in this who today people continue to look back to because there was very likely a strong connection between Conley and his role in Mary Fagan's death. And we just will never know. We'll never know because it was clear that they wanted to scapegoat Leo Frank instead. I mean, obviously, they don't have DNA testing back then. The physical evidence has been tampered with. Like, had they done proper police work today, you would have found scratch marks and probably skin underneath her fingernails and all kinds of things that they just did not have the uh, ability to do back then. Uh, and so they're hampered a lot by the lack of technology. But it's very clear they want to railroad somebody and Connolly's being kind of used in order to do it. The trial begins on July 28th. Leo Frank has eight lawyers. So there's like a whole bunch of them. The prosecution team is led by Hugh Dorsey and William Smith, who's also Conley's lawyer, which seems to me to be a conflict of interest there. Just a bit. Huh. And you're getting the double cocktail of both troubling anti-Semitism and racism on display in the trial. And it's really interesting to me is that the two other suspects who are not Leo Frank are both black men. And had this gone a different, would have been super interested in pursuing the sort of racist angle against these two black men, but instead they pursue the anti-Semitism angle against Leo Frank. So it's just such an interesting cocktail of like really terribleness. And the defense has dozens of young women who work at the factory to testify to Frank's good character, but it's easy for the, the prosecution, like we mentioned earlier, they find a lot of former factory workers who make claims about Leo Frank's sexual appetite. Now, again, just because he was a flirt doesn't mean he was a killer. Like, I'm just going to mention that. Um although they they very easily paint him as a pedophile too. So that's, that's good times. The crowd gathers every day outside the courtroom and chant, hang the Jew. The defense wisely is going to request a mistrial for this exact reason, because honestly, I would too. And Leo Frank ends up convicted of murder. The deliberations are less than four hours, uh, and, and it is unanimous, as it has to be for a murder conviction. And the sentencing happens the next day. He's sentenced to the, the death penalty. Now, here's the thing to keep in mind. 
because they were denied a change of venue, because they were denied a mistrial, the whole time this is going on, there is a crowd, a large, probably armed, very angry crowd of people yelling outside the courtroom throughout the trial. And the judge is, this is an intimidation tactic, both the jury and the judge. And the judge feels that if the sentencing doesn't go the way the crowd wants, which is the death penalty, it might go badly for the people inside the courtroom. And so you're seeing there's a lot of intimidation here. There's a lot of anger here. And people are getting whipped up into a frenzy. And the judge does not have, is basically bowing to the pressure. He does not have the ability to move what's happening here. So we're not getting justice. We're getting mob violence with the imprimatur of the court on top of it. Yeah, absolutely. The sort of idea that this is a fair shake that, you know, because this will be the talking point later is that there was a trial, Leo Frank got a trial, jury and judge made their ruling, but they're doing it under this massive intimidation. They're doing it under this mob, it's mob rule, it's mob, you know, this threat of mob violence. And because they are unwilling to move the case, because they're unwilling to change venues or change location, the ruling is a little suspect. And we have to remember that the judge is doing this under great duress, to which he says later in life and and, and later in this process that he felt pressured to give the crowd what he wanted. So this is not a fair, a fair shake under the law. This is not due process as we are guaranteed in, in our constitution. And of course, not too surprisingly, Frank's lawyers are going to appeal and they will appeal many times. They will do two years worth of appeals. And this actually does go all the way up to the Supreme Court. And Georgia law at the time in regards to the death penalty was complicated. Basically, you could not reevaluate the evidence. If the death penalty was was the sentence in your appeal, you could only appeal based on errors in the law and not in any sort of retrying the trial itself. And Frank's lawyers find 115 procedural issues with his trial. In their initial appeal, they list 115 places where the law was an error or the law was not implemented the way that it should be, which is a lot. <laughs> Even if you disagreed with a couple, 115 is a lot. This does eventually make its way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court is going to reject the appeal with a 7-2 vote. Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. will note that he seriously doubts that Leo Frank had due process of law. Holmes is exceptionally well-respected, and so this carries some weight with people. But it's Holmes and, at the time, Chief Justice Charles Evans Hughes, who are the two dissenters. They are the ones that say, look, it's clear that this was not a fair practice of the law. The other justices, the seven that basically reject the appeal, say that Leo Frank should have tried to raise these objections quickly during the trial, which I just want to put out his lawyers did. They did try to get a mistrial. They tried to change venue. There were many, many, many objections throughout. But ultimately, the Supreme Court, with the exception of Holmes and Hughes, feel that Georgia law is Georgia law. If Leo had a problem with it, he should have said something during his trial. And so this is where we're at. And then the governor of Georgia comes in, a man named John Slanton. And he has been pressured to look at this. And he agrees to, and he takes this very seriously. He's going to visit the crime scene. He's going to read over 10,000 pages of documents, including a letter from the original judge, Judge Rowan, who basically says to Slanton, you need to correct my mistake. 
I had to do this because of the pressure from the crowd, but the death penalty is not the right decision. Slanton is going to criticize the media. He's going to say that the media caused a lot of the violence or the, the kind of threat of violence and the mob mentality. He is going to, Slanton's basically going to say that there was enough evidence at the trial to find Frank guilty, but there was also enough new evidence not available at the time of the original trial. And Slanton, as Georgia governor, will use his power of office to commute the sentence from death to life in prison. He says he would, he tells the press at his big press conference that he would rather be plowing a field than to feel for the rest of his life that he had that man's blood on his hands. And this is basically the end for Slanton's political career. He is going to face huge death threats for commuting the sentence. This is not even absolving Leo Frank entirely. This is just commuting to life in prison. Slanton faces death threats. He has to flee Georgia. He literally, um, as soon as his term is over, flees. Um, it's the end of his political career. It's the end of really his life in Georgia. But he does it because he truly feels through a very thorough review of the case that there had been huge issues uh, in terms of carrying out justice in this regard. So for Leo Frank, you can imagine two years, the Supreme Court, the appeals, none of this is working. And now the governor has commuted your sentence. This is a huge relief, right? At least life in prison, that might give an opportunity for release through good behavior. There's, there's a venue there, potentially. And the commutation comes down in June of 1915. So like about two years after the trial. On August 17, 1915, influential citizens from Atlanta have been stewing about this for about six or seven weeks now, about the governor's decision, and decide they want to take action. They're going to be spurred on by the local press, and the politicians are calling for mob justice. So basically, the same exact mob we saw outside of his trial are now going to be calling for some kind of mob justice, vigilante justice, now that his death sentence has been vacated. 25 to 28 men who are all described as sober, intelligent, of established good name and character storm a prison hospital on August 17, 1915 and kidnap Leo Frank. The full list of the men involved was not released until the year 2000. It includes a former Georgia governor, a former president of the Georgia Senate, plus sheriffs and law enforcement officers. Huh. Uh, they bring him more than 100 miles to Marietta, which is close to Mary Fagan's home, her where her family was, where she was born, and they lynch him. And they take pictures. It's deeply disturbing. There are photos of not only Leo's Leo Frank's body being hanged, but also the crowd around him cheering it on. It's almost like a carnival atmosphere. You can tell from the photos that these are not men ashamed of what they're doing. They're then going to further desecrate the body. They are, some of the members of this party are going to continue to want to desecrate Leo Frank's body after it he's has passed away. So this is a violent, angry mob full of upstanding white Anglo-Saxon Protestants who have stolen a body, stolen a person from jail and brought him over a hundred miles to kill him. And they've taken photos. Postcards with photos are going to be sold in stores. And to be very clear, this is not the only lynching. This is not the only lynching where there are photos. This, that's, this is a, the, if you're thinking of the South at this time, this is sort of prime moment for lynchings. From the 1880s to about 1925, you're seeing a sort of uh, a lot of vigilante justice just like this. And this is going to be 
widely covered in the newspapers and it's very well documented. There are plenty of photos and people are really shocked by this, uh, the brutality of this. And many of the, the men involved are going to go on to become leaders in Georgia politics. You know, Hugh, Hugh Dorsey, the prosecutor, becomes governor of Georgia. Like I mentioned, a former governor of Georgia is involved in the lynching. There are pictures of this man next to Leo Frank's body. It's really terrible. There are Jewish businesses are going to be boycotted throughout Georgia. There's a significant uptick in anti-Semitic action. Uh, and over 3,000 Jewish citizens will leave Georgia. Uh, and those that stay try to downplay their religion. So this is going to have a huge and lasting impact on the vibrant Jewish community that was existing in Atlanta. They are going to be, many of them are going to be chased out. Uh, and those that remain are going to be much more quiet uh, about sort of uh, their religious practice. So the intimidation tactic works, essentially. It's going to have two direct and very opposite results. One is that it leads to the founding of the Anti-Defamation League, which is still with us and really amazing. The other is that it's going to reinstate the KKK in Georgia, which is also still with us and not amazing. A lot of the men who participate in the Leo Franklin Ching are going to go on to basically, the literally the same men are going to a few weeks later reform the KKK in Georgia, which reestablishes itself uh, with a cross burning on Stone Mountain shortly after Leo Frank's murder. So this has two very opposite uh, effects that still very much, the ripple effects of which still carry with us to the present day. Um, absolutely. You know, this is, um, this, uh, the, and really the two years of Leo Frank's sort of miscarriage of justice through the trials, the appeals, and then the, the lynching is going to really spur, um, Jewish groups and organizations to, and individuals to form the Anti-Defamation League. Obviously, this is not the only anti-Semitic activity, but this is really something where they can rally supporters and funds and the press. And the ADL is still with us today. We're actually very fortunate to partner with them for tours and programs, um, in Washington, D.C. So that's, I think, one of the, the biggest sort of things that comes from this. I do want to circle back to his wife, Lucille, who we hadn't mentioned too much. She and Leo had only been married a couple of years. They were very early into their marriage. This is a shocking event. Um, I think for Lucille, someone who had been a Georgian her whole life, had felt at home in Atlanta to see this happen is really, really shocking. She is only 27 when he is murdered. Um, so she is very, very young at the time of his death. She never remarries. She primarily supports herself by working in the retail uh, sort of space. She will uh, work several different places as a retail clerk. Her doctor once said that Leo may have been killed, but she is the one who served a life sentence. This is something that she carries with her the rest of her life. She shows sort of physical signs of what we would recognize as post-traumatic stress. He was really instrumental in preserving her husband's legacy. She compiled all of his correspondence written from prison. She kept many of the trial documents. She really wanted as much as possible to make sure that future generations would know who her husband was outside of everything that had been printed in the papers and said about him. She did uncover a letter written to Frank while he was in prison. It did not reach him. It arrives to the prison after he's already been kidnapped and taken out. It was sent from allegedly a friend of Jim Connolly's who said that he knew, quote, in his very heart and soul that it was Conley that killed the Fagan girl, end quote. This is not 
unusual, more and more people will come forward. People who knew Conley uh, with their belief that Conley was involved. She only ever issued one public statement about her husband's lynching. She said this, I am a Georgia girl born and reared in the state and educated in her schools. I am a Jewish. Some will throw that in my face, I know, but I have no apologies to make for my religion. I'm also a Georgian and American, and I do not apologize for that either. I only pray that those who destroyed Leo's life will realize the truth before they meet their God. They perhaps are not entirely to blame, fed as they were on lies unspeakable, their passion aroused by designing persons. And there's a, a little bit more to her statement, but you can see here that she's acknowledging that this is something that was stoked by politicians, by the press, by anti-Semitic forces, and that she recognizes that this was an, an attack and nothing really truly to do with her husband and his guilt or not guilt over this. She lives to 1957. She lives um, quite a long time. And this is something that has still remained a part of Georgia's history and is something that Georgia politicians have sort of started to grapple with in a more contemporary era. In the 80s, 1982, a young man at the time, or I should say, not young in 1982, Alonzo Mann, who was a young man, he was 14 years old, working as Leo Frank's assistant at the National Pencil Company, came forward in 1982 and said that he saw Connolly carrying Mary Fagan's body. He had initially given testimony back during the trial that he had seen Leo Frank carrying Fagan's body. Mann comes forward in 1982 because um, he felt that before he died, he needed to set the record straight, but he said he never spoke up before because he feared that Connolly would also kill him. And we have to keep in mind, right, so many of the people that worked in this factory who may have been witnesses to what happened on that day were children, 11, 12, 13, 14. So it's an unfair burden to an extent, I think, to to expect that if they felt that their life was at risk, that if this man might also kill them, if you've got powerful politicians and prosecutors and policemen telling you to say something, the people who may have very well have been the most important witnesses were the ones also most ripe for intimidation. And that's, I think, very much the case with Alonzo Mann. In uh, 1986, Leo Frank is pardoned by the state of Georgia by Governor Joe Frank Harris, who is still alive um, at the time that we are recording this podcast, um, which I thought was pretty um, impressive. He said it is in recognition of the state's failure to protect the person of Leo Frank and therefore preserve his opportunity for continued legal appeal of his conviction and in recognition of the state's failure to bring his killers to justice and as an effort to heal old wounds. And the state just about two years ago opened up a commission that is going to reassess the murder of Mary Fagan and Leo Frank's trial and potentially help us come closer to finding the reality and the truth of what actually happened to her. Unfortunately, so much of the physical evidence is no longer available to us to test, but it would be good to sort of re-examine what had happened um, with Leo Frank and Mary Fagan. And I'm glad that we're sort of, Georgia's sort of taking this on to, to redo what has happened here. Well, and I, as much as I, I think we we wanted to talk about Leo Frank and his story and this horrible lynching and this tragedy, there was also another tragedy here, which is a teenage girl is assaulted and murdered at her place of work, and that whoever committed that crime was never brought to justice. And that is the other tragedy alongside what happens to Leo Frank here. And so... 
if the state of Georgia is able to come closer to confirming either Conley's role as as the murderer or or finding the real murderer, being able to bring, I think, closure to Fagan and her descendants. There are family, uh, not descendants, but she has family members still alive in Georgia. Um, I think they they deserve that sort of closure. Well, that was uh, Leo Frank. We're starting out the year with two heavy hitters here, quite literally. We are so excited you guys are still with us next month. February is, of course, Black History Month, Uh, so we'll be back in your ear holes with uh, some Black history, and we got a couple of great topics lined up, and uh, we're excited. So thank you guys for coming on the journey with us, and we will see you next time. Bye, guys. Thank you so much.